Hello. Hello. Hey. And hello. I think Luke can join in whenever he gets on. I guess we should do a show, huh? Back to the bin. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro and this week I have a full house here and none of them are named Bill or Scott. I was supposed to record tonight with Bill and then he got caught up with some some sort of computer problem, which uh, is more convoluted than I care to get into at the moment. So he had to beg off, so I threw out the call this morning and, you know, it, it actually makes me feel good that so many people are so quick to say, yeah, I want to be on. You know, it's, it's it's a combination of making me feel good about the show and also making me feel good about the friendships that we've formed. So today we have with us faux Gene Hendricks. Greetings, Harris Pataro. And Luke Giaconetti. Hey, how's it going? It's going good, thank you. And Mr. Al Sedano. Hello. And we had others who were saying, damn, I wish I was available, but I can't. Uh, in particular, uh, Professor Allen, who was cursing his in-laws because he had to do something with them this evening. But uh, you know, like I said, very cool that you guys are available and ready to go. Uh, and just for the sake of anybody who doesn't follow us on Facebook, when I say faux Gene Hendricks. <laughs> uh, Gene, what do we know each other? About five or six years now? Something like that? Some, something like that, yeah. And in the time I've known Gene, he's always had a, uh, a a nicely groomed, thin beard the entire time. It, it, it has been referred to as the Will Riker beard. And for reasons that escape me, yesterday having been Halloween, Gene decided to totally change his facial hair look in order to uh, do a Halloween costume to please his daughter, of all things. Who would think such a thing? Shocking. Yes. Shocking. Yes. But but I I'll tell you I don't remember the last time that somebody shaving some facial hair created such a, a stark difference in the way somebody appears. <laughs> it gave Rob Kelly the vapors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it's one of those things where like like I told the people at work, if I'm going to commit to a costume, I'm going to commit to a costume. And the character I was dressed up as had this little chin scruff and that's it. So I had to break out ye old razor. Mm. I'm not a fan of ye old razor. <laughs> well, it's it's funny actually. I'm I'm normally clean shaven, um, but today, as as you, as you referenced, yesterday was Halloween. Today is November the first, so I am clean shaven today. But today does mark the beginning of Movember, which is the one ah. time a year where I grow. I, I would like to grow a mustache. My wife told me, and I quote, that a mustache was two eighties. <laughs> so, and I'm she, like, what? No, no such thing as two eighties. But you know, I, I, she, she's, you know, she's in charge. So, but uh, so I actually this the one time a year I grow a goatee. So all my Thanksgiving pictures, I have a goatee, and I look, you know, except it's like, okay, that's not what I look like the rest of the year. <laughs> well, it's it is it is weird when you look around. Seventies and eighties were the era of the mustache. Yes. Oh and, yeah. I mean, almost every man you knew had a mustache. <laughs> Very few people didn't. And now you hardly see anybody who just has a mustache. Very, very few. 
Yeah. So yeah, it, it's kind it, of an all or nothing thing. Yeah, it's it's either a goatee, a beard, or clean shaven. It's a it's a combo or something. Yeah. But we're not here to talk facial grooming. Of all Aww. things, so shocking as it is, we're <laughs> we here to do Magnum. comics. What's that? What was that? Al? So we could have talked about Magnum for a while then. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think if we were talking if we were talking about Magnum, I think suddenly Andrew Leyland would appear on the podcast yeah. somehow. <laughs> so we're talking about Magnum, you know. <laughs> the current Magnum doesn't does not have a stash, is that right? And that's I haven't seen it. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet hour? either. But we get total know. silence. Nobody knows. Nobody cares because no, Tom <laughs> Selleck is Magnum. Right. Yep. Yeah. Now, this show may be, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about this for just a minute. This show may be good. It may not be good. But I question the, you know, the, the thought process of remaking a show that was so focused on one particular character and that that particular character, you know, embodied the show with that particular mm-hmm. actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the same same nonsense a few years ago. There was a, a the, I think it was NBC did a, a remake of MacGyver. With, oh, yeah. with a new guy playing MacGyver, and it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. It's 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 the that's familiar aspect. It's like you know, you don't need to tell an original story or get an original concept if you just remake something everyone already knows. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's so much of, especially a show like Magnum, is is in the identity of of Tom Selleck that to the point that I mean that that became a running gag with him as an actor. I mean, even in like Friends and stuff, they make Magnum PI jokes. And that was about a decade after Magnum had ended. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I agree with you. I, I don't. I don't really see the the appeal, other than you know, you're going to catch some people that don't want to watch that you know old show. They'd rather watch something new, I guess. But yeah, know. personally, I'd yeah. I would rather do a rewatch of the entire Tom, Tom Selleck Magnum series. Oh right. yeah, yeah. But you know, to each their yeah. own. I'm trying to think if there are any current remakes that I've been watching. I, I didn't, you know, I, I kind of liked Lethal Weapon when they started it, but I never got totally into it. Yeah, and that, uh, that show I don't think is long for this earth anyway with all the behind-the-scenes problems. No, oh, it's yeah. his name. Uh, Wayans has already said at the end of the season he's done. So it's one thing to lose Riggs. It's another thing to lose Riggs and Murta. Yeah, and I don't know if I count that as a remake thing because at least that's more along the lines of MASH, just, you know, a lot more longer period of time between the show and the movie, but... Yeah, it's an adaptation for mm-hmm. a television series as opposed to a remake, I guess. Hawaii Five O remake. Yeah, and I watched the first season or two of that. That wasn't bad. No, I I enjoyed enough of that. I watched a few seasons of that. I wonder if maybe though that's more because I never watched Hawaii Five O before, so I have no real attachment to it as opposed to Magnum. Mm-hmm. I had seen episodes of the original series, but I was never a devotee, so you know it was okay. Magnum was a series I always enjoyed, though. So, yeah, I guess that's that's the difference. Although my all-time favorite show is The Odd Couple. And <laughs> when they did the most recent remake with uh, Matthew Perry and I forget the other guy's name, Tom Lennon, I think it is. Uh, I watched it. I didn't think, I, you know, it wasn't Jack Klugman and Tony Randall by any stretch. But it was enjoyable in its own way. So I, yeah. can, I can adapt. He can be taught. <laughs> that may be overstating it. <laughs> anyway, so we have a four-man booth with three comics today, and I think we should probably get right into it because who knows how long we're gonna go. <laughs> and Luke, you have our Marvel and also our oldest book, so you get to go first. Are you there, Luke? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Um, so, so the Marvel that I brought with uh, with me tonight. Um, 
I, I, you know, the, the call went out and I said, you know what? I want to do something serious. I, I want to do something that matters, uh, something that's important, something that has a lot of gravitas and weight to it. So the first book I thought of was what if volume one, number 14, what if Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos had fought World War II in outer space? Um, Naturally. The, <laughs> not, not only, not only a, a book with gravitas, but, a, but one that's easily relatable to today's events. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, more more than you might think at, at some points. But in any event, uh, so this the cover date was April 1979. The on-sale date was January 23rd, 1979. Information comes from Mike's amazing world of comics. Uh, our cover is by Herb Trimpey and Joe Sinnott, and it's exactly what you would expect. It has Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos wearing spacesuits out in space, uh, armed with laser rifles, blasting away at aliens as a space battle with spaceships goes on behind them. And you got Sergeant Fury yelling, keep moving, you lunkheads. Nobody lives forever. So get the lead out and follow me. We got us a space war to win. (laughs) And there's a burst at the bottom that says, first Star Wars, then Battlestar Galactica. And now, so Marvel clearly tying this issue into their ongoing, uh, uh, you know, licensed space operas, clearly. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I this cover is amazing. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that that's <laughs> this is this cover is fantastic. I gotta uh, say this, this cover has got a tremendous amount going on. This yes. for, for it to have so much activity and have it so that you could still focus on pretty much on Fury and Dum Dum is that's a little bit of a trick. Uh, I, I tip my hat to to Herb Trimpey for the layout. Yeah, well, you know it's 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 and I, and I I have this in my notes, but. You know, Trimpey at this time, he was doing Marvel's Godzilla. He was doing Shogun Warriors. He was also doing Defenders. I'm not really familiar with the Defenders stuff, but uh, anyone who listens to my show, we're at Destruction Directive, knows I've, I've covered all of Shogun Warriors, and I've covered, I'm, I'm just about done with Marvel Godzilla. And Trimpey did all the covers for Godzilla, and I think all the covers but one for Shogun Warriors, and... He you know, he always has these jam-packed covers with lots of stuff going on in them. So that this is very kind of in the wheelhouse of Herb Trimpey for this type of type of cover. So our writer is Gary Friedrich uh, from on the plot, Don Glut on the script, and uh, supposedly the idea was suggested by Roy Thomas. Our penciler is uh, Herb Trimpey. Um, Pablo Marcos is our inker. Tom Orzechowski is the letterer. Colorist is D.R. Martin. Our editor uh, was Roy Thomas, and it is a stunning saga of an alternate reality. What if Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos had fought World War II in outer space? In a reality where the early production of Leonardo da Vinci's flying machine design started Earth's accelerated technological advancement, events parallel to World War II occur in outer space. We start on Space Station Pearl where civilian volunteer soldiers from Earth, Nick Fury, and Red Hargrove are caught in an ambush from the Batons, enemies of Earth's allies, the Alphans. Fury and Red fight valiantly, but are outnumbered and end up being saved by Captain Happy Sam Sawyer, who dies from injuries right as he tells Fury he was putting together a new commando unit, which Fury is to command. Station Pearl is lost and Earth is drawn into the war. Later, Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos, Red, Dum Dum Duggan, Gabe Jones, Dino Manelli, Izzy Cohen, Rebel Ralston, and Junior Juniper are training when they are assigned a new CO, a computer who can only act through robotic drones. The Howlers reluctantly accept this 
and Red is given a new assignment. Later, the Batons plan a massive attack on Midway Station, which is of supreme strategic importance, and are being aided by a Terran traitor who plans to sell out the Batons and then take over the Earth after the Alphan forces are weakened. Red and the other bomber pilots are scrambled to take out the Baton flagship, while the Howlers are tasked with rescuing Admiral off of the cruiser Yorktown. The bombing raid goes poorly, and Red is left floating in space. The Howlers' mission also turns south when we see that the Admiral is Baron Von Strucker, and the Howlers battle his space Nazis. Strucker tries to escape, but is sucked out of an airlock. The Howlers then hijack a bomber from Yorktown and join the counterattack and eliminate the Baton flagship, rescuing Red in the process. Their computerized CO, however, chastises the Howlers for rescuing Red, thus breaking orders, leaving Fury to wonder if the computer isn't programmed after Happy Sam Sawyer. Uh, I, I found this, it's appropriate to cover this on Back to the Bins, because I actually did find this by uh, back issue bin diving, uh, cheapy bin diving. I, I uh, had to go pick my my uh, my oldest boy up from chess club, and my his school is right near my local comic shop, and I got, out of, got off work early that day and had about uh, 45 minutes to kill, so I just went and started flipping through the dollar bins, and I saw this cover. And I read the cover and I said, yep, you're coming home with me. You, know, <laughs> you, you have my attention. What if? So, um, so yeah, I, I, and, and then, you know, it, uh, this, this book just delivered is it's so, I, I just had a lot of fun with this. And, uh, I think it's interesting about kind of the creative team is that Gary Friedrich, he was the regular writer on Sergeant Fury. Uh, he also wrote Captain Storm and his Leatherneck Raiders, and he wrote Combat Kelly and his Deadly Dozen. And he did write uh, a decent amount of the Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Stru- um, uh, strip uh, starting in kind of the late 60s and into 1970. So he was already like well known for writing Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos uh, or, or, uh, earlier in the decade. Uh, Trimpey did a few of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And, and one issue of Nick Fury, but it wasn't a regular gig for him. But Frederick and Trimpey actually worked together quite a bit. They, they worked on Hulk. Uh, worked on Captain Britain. Trimpey did some early Ghost Rider stuff. They did a lot of westerns. Uh, they worked on Two Gun Kid and Rawhide Kid, and they co-created the western character Phantom Eagle. Um, so when this came out in '79, Trimpey was, as I was, as I said, was doing like Godzilla, Shogun Warriors, and Defenders. And Friedrich actually was out of comics. He had, uh, so, you know, stated his retired his retirement from comics in 1978. So this was kind of a one shot gig of him coming back, which is I, I'm assuming why. Uh, you know, he provided the plot, and then Don Glut came in and did, did the script over top of that plot. But it very much feels like a a you know a, a Gary Friedrich written issue of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, that, you know, except in space. Yeah, it does. It it definitely <laughs> the whole Baron Strucker thing, I think, is what really makes it feel like kind of a traditional Sergeant Fury book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just, you know, What If was just a fun series. That's really the bottom line of it, and this fits right in with it. Uh, it's not as head-scratching as some of the other ones, and, and head-scratching is the wrong term for it. It's not as thought-provoking, is a better way to say it, as mm. some of the other ones, because this, this is just, let's take our heroes and put them in a fun situation, as opposed to let's take a pivotal moment in the hero's life and look at what his life would have been had it gone differently, mm-hmm. which I think is actually the real premise of what if. But I think they kind of, you know, 
I think they had to expand it because they knew they were going to only have so many pivotal moments to uh, you know to go after that mm. people were going to recognize as being pivotal. So they had to come up with some other concepts to do, and I think you know this is one of them. Uh, you know, the aliens are kind of generic. They're not you know they're not. Although I, I don't know if they ever appeared elsewhere in the Marvel universe. Uh, what What's interesting is that the they don't look the same, but there is a race of Batons that actually are. Uh, featured in in Marvel Godzilla, there there's a there's a uh, uh, a multiple part story about it's it's basically two alien races are fighting each other, and one of the races has an army of monsters that's their weapons of mass destruction, and so the other race kidnaps Godzilla and makes him their champion to fight against these other monsters, and one of the races there is the Batons, but they don't really look the same as the Batons here, so I think it's just a coincidence. I think they, these look more reminiscent of the Badoon. Except they're mm, red. Yeah. They're red instead of green. Yeah, right. I was I was actually a bit surprised they didn't use any existing Mar- uh, Marvel races just to make it more fit in. You know, Kree, Skrull. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I would have thought that would have been. Yeah. I, I would have thought that would be more likely to go that route, but for whatever reason they didn't. Uh, they decided to come up with a a, a new race <laughs> to deal with. But again, you know, it's fine. They they feel a little bit generic, but I don't think they needed to be fleshed out for a one you know for a one and done story mm-hmm. yeah i mean we don't even see the other race do we the alphas i don't remember no. seeing them in there well, at all. And, yeah and, that, and that's the thing is that you know the watcher and the watcher's wearing like his his late 70s gear here so you know he's he's got nightwing's collar and he's got you know the warlord's <laughs> uh chess piece and, and all that the big, um, the big you know. cape yeah, get me, get me my big cape. <laughs> Someone get him some my... pants, though. <laughs> Where? Well, he doesn't have any legs on the splash page, so he doesn't have to worry about pants if he don't got legs. But uh... yeah, but that last panel, oh boy. Oh yeah, uh, and he's bulked up too. Yeah, <laughs> he's been hitting the gym. Yeah, one, he... one, one of my favorite moments in in the art is uh, on page fifteen of the uh, scan, uh, top top panel. Uh, Nick Fury making good use of the gravity and uh, being able to not have to hold a cigar in his mouth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that, the best part. The fishbowls on their heads and Nick Fury has the cigar. Captain Sawyer has his pipe in his mouth. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Dum Dum has the hat and it falls over his eyes and he can't see. I mean, it, it's like a story point even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 it leans so far into the ridiculousness that, you know, it, it it, and and the thing is, is that even under Friedrich, Sergeant Fury was never as serious as its counterpart over at DC, which is Sergeant Rock. Okay, Sergeant Rock was, I'm, I'm not going to say an unblinking look at war, but it, it was a little less adventurous than Sergeant Fury. Sergeant Fury had a very colorful cast of characters, had the kind of recurring villains, and it, it was a more... Um, a little bit lighter series. So that kind of stuff was common, you know, the, and the way that Herb Trimpey always draws people with their cigars, just kind of flying out of their mouth. He does it with dum, dum Duggan and Ben Graham and Godzilla. I've seen him do it several times, but it, it just, it, it really embraces the, the idea of, okay, uh, something weird happened and now we're fighting in space, but otherwise they're still the same howlers, you yeah. know, there, there's oh, yeah. nothing about this that really changes any of their characters around. And, and and that 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 was the thing I, I really just really enjoyed because it gives Trimpy it puts Trimpy in his element because Trimpy was a big fan of uh, like technology and monsters and robots so he has all this sci-fi stuff to draw 
you know, and, and, and there's, there's spaceships and space stations and aliens and robots and all this stuff in here. So we get to all this interesting technological science fiction-y stuff to draw. But at the same time, it, it's recognizably Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos. And, I, and, and so that, that just really, especially given at, at this time, by 1979, I want to say that Nick Fury was still being published, but it had been in reprints for many years. Yeah, at this yeah, point, they, won't, they the weren't labs. producing anything new at this time. Yeah, I, I find I, I Nick Fury s- to be a fascinating character because they introduced him as Sergeant Fury in May of 1963, but then they introduced him as a modern-day spy in December of 1963. Mm-hmm. So, so there was a very small gap there. Where you know where he only existed as a war character, mm, and I right. and I think that might be the biggest difference between him and Sergeant Rock. Now I think Sergeant Rock they eventually gave him a modern day. Persona. It depends yeah. how you look at it. Yeah, <coughs> I, don't, I, know I don't think they ever actually came out and said this is the same guy, but it's Im- kind of implied. Yeah, they implied. I know in the Keith Giffen Suicide Squad series, the twelve issue one that had Major Disaster in it. Him, uh, Killer Frost. Mm-hmm. He was supposedly the one in charge, but then at the very last issue, they leave it ambiguous as to whether or not it actually was Sergeant Rock. And doesn't isn't isn't he isn't a character who's a general called like General Rock present during like the final night story, uh, and some stuff like that. Or worlds at war. Or worlds yeah. at war. One of them. Yeah. That's when Luther it. was president, he was yeah. like the Secretary of State. But again, I think they did some kind of things where they kind of implied that, well, maybe it's him and maybe the real Sergeant Rock actually died because it wasn't supposed to be that he's killed with the last bullet of World War II. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's always been kind of that. But even just saying that, you get the idea right there that Rock is a very different character than, than Fury. Fury has a lot more actual personality and character than Rock. Mm-hmm. You know, Rock is, Rock is um, depending on the story, the amount of personality that Rock shows varies. I mean, there's a few where he really is a very, you know, a very well fleshed out character. And there are others where Rock acts more like the sounding board, almost like the narrator when the focus is on one of the other members of easy and he, and Rock is talking to you as a reader, you know, and tell, and telling you how the story is progressing. So Fury was always much more of a Marvel character. He was a very, you know, uh, broadly defined, but well-defined character and he had his crazy, colorful group of howlers that were with him. Uh, you know, so it, it lends itself more to this type of ridiculous what-if type of scenario oh, than yeah. a Sergeant Rock story does. So that, it's, it's, and, and it's so wonderfully Marvel, this idea that, you know, oh, you know, a few, th- you know, Da Vinci actually developed his flying mm-hmm. machine. So, so we've been in outer space for like forever. So it's yeah. normal that World War II would happen in space. Like, oh, right. yeah. It's like, no, wait. No, that, no that, I don't so, believe that. But that's really the what-if moment. That's the turning right. point of history there. And the main difference, I would say, actually, because I was thinking about this as you were talking, is that Sergeant Rock has always been a war comic. Nick, yeah. Sergeant Fury is a superhero comic that just happens to be during the war. I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Half the time, they don't use guns. They just mm. punch out the Nazis. Yes. They just beat them up. It's Kirby's kid gangs just running around beating people up, as opposed to Sergeant Rock, where they're actually killing the hell out of everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right, where it's, it's Sergeant Rock, where usually there's that one point where everyone is pinned down under fire from either a tiger tank or a sniper, usually, you know. And, yeah, and uh, nobody's Fury, gonna... they would jump over it and beat the guy up. <laughs> and yell, Yahoo! as they did it. <laughs> exactly. And that's I, also I, why this works, because this is just a superhero comic that just takes place now. In, they just add the words, in space, to the script. Right. Yes. 
I mean, I, I you know, after the burst on the um, on on the the cover that says first Star Wars and then Battlestar Galactica. Now, I would love this to be an ongoing series. <laughs> I mean, I would yeah. absolutely love it to be an ongoing series. Just you know, again, just just. Just just take it and uh, let them, you know, run around and fight the Batons on whatever front, and just like, every every name of every battle is a reference for to, uh, to, oh, to some other World War Two battle or whatever. <laughs> I wish they had come up with a better solution for the Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos having, you know, been alive for you know whatever however many years it is now since World War Two. Uh, I was good. I was fine with the Infinity Formula, but now they. I guess they decided they just had enough of that, and then they went to, you know, now he's really aged and everything, and he's in outer space, whatever. Well, Dugan's dead. And he's yeah, an LMD. Du- du- yeah, Dugan's been yeah, an LMD. Dugan's for- been dead. He's been an LMD for for a long time now, right? Yeah. And I don't... I would rather they just did the... Uh, the, 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 the time, you know, the, the sliding timeline, and, you know, made them soldiers in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, well, see, the the interesting thing is that there are there's one Sergeant uh, Fury story and one Captain Savage story that actually feature the both of them feature a character from the FF before they were the FF because there's a there's an issue excuse me of Sergeant Fury where they have to meet up with their contact from the OSS and it's Reed Richards and then there's a, a Captain Savage story where they have to go rescue uh, some pilots that were downed and one of them is Ben Grimm. So already there, the sliding timeline kind of works because if we assume that their history in the service before their, you know, they became the Fantastic Four is still in continuity, then those those two stories at least have to still be in continuity in some capacity. So yeah, I, I agree. It, 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 they could do that. I mean, they did that with Iron Man. They've continually moved his origin forward yeah, from Vietnam as as, to. Yeah, Afghanistan. Was, yeah, and now it's yeah. For a while, it was just in a. For a while, they actually took it out of a war and just put it in Southeast Asia and just kind of made it vague. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I mean to that I'm I'm okay with that. You could even do the JSA thing and have them be like time displaced. You know, I think you could. I mean, especially uh, some of the some of the folks working for Marvel now, you could make a, a good comedy book out of having you know the the Howlers from 1944 dropped into 2018. And then, <laughs> In the middle of oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like I can I can see the headlines on Newsarama now about <laughs> book canceled immediately upon launch. <laughs> Speaking of the Howlers, I recognize that. I mean, I'm not the greatest Nick Fury expert, but I recognize them all except Red Hargrove. Although the name does sound vaguely familiar, is he a Howler? I just didn't realize. I don't think I, I'm trying to remember that. Also, I don't think Red. I think Red was a character that showed up in in the books. I don't think he was ever a Howler. I think he was a pilot, which is why he ends up as the bomber pilot, if I'm remembering right. But yeah, the the regular crew of Howlers, you know, Dum Dum, Gabe, uh, Izzy, Junior, uh, Junior, Dizzy. Rebel, Dino. I mean, th- those are the guys. That those, that's the regular crew. So I'm not sure. I, I want to say Hargrove was a was a a secondary character, but not not an actual Howler. Okay, I'm actually looking up. Oh, first appearance, Sergeant Fury, number seven. Okay, she's been yeah. around for a long time. Been around for but, a while. Just, just like Captain only, Sam has been around too. Yeah. He only has two issues before this: issue seven, issue thirty-four, and then this issue. Oh, really? And then yeah. he's in the, and then he's in the four four issues of the Marvels Project, and that's it. According to Marvel Wiki, Red Hargrove was a friend of Nick Fury. They met at the church of his brother Lewis, 
and became inseparable friends. When he died at Pearl Harbor, Fury became a commando to avenge him. Oh, Oh, and that's why the two issues I'm showing that he's in, the titles are The the Court-Martial of Sergeant Fury and The Origin of the Howlers. Okay. That makes sense. And according to this, he's appeared eight times, and yet they don't have... Don't they have eight seven. issues listed, and it does not have this issue of what if. So, <laughs> well, that that would well that would be the Red Hargrove of a different universe, though. Yeah. Oh, you know what? <laughs> this page contains a listing of all known appearances of Red Hargrove Earth six one six. So you hit it right on the head. Yeah, you gotta look for Earth. Where is this? It's here somewhere. It's on. It's on the Marvel Wiki. Uh, it's like nine, seven, nine something. Yeah, seven nine one eight. Yeah. Which would be, um, yeah, with 79, 1979, maybe, I don't know, maybe this was the 18th world or something. <laughs> Just looking the way, the way they have his character. Uh, first appearance, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, number seven. Appearance of death, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, number seven. <laughs> That's <laughs> <how> sad. <laughs> Same for Uncle Ben. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And just going to Uncle Ben, and I've said this before, but it just disturbs me, is that uh, after we saw Sp- Spider-Man Homecoming, my friend uh, pointed out to me, he says, you know, you watch these movies and your point of view character is Spider-Man, so you picture yourself being Spider-Man, but you know you're really Uncle Ben now, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, just shut up and go away. Yeah. Well, that, that's so like, you know. Your friend you're, said that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that, that's like, you know, you uh, your kid wants to be Batman for Halloween. What does that tell you, you know? That means you're Thomas Wayne. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Dad, let's go down this alley. Come on, just go down the alley. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, let's let's not go see the Mark of Zorro, please. <laughs> that, that's another one that, you know, that there was a joke on... There used to be a webcomic called Short Pact, and there was a joke about the, the sliding timeline for that, and that was always the Mark of Zorro, and they kept moving it forward, moving it forward. It's like, eventually he's going to go see, like, Pokemon the movie or something, right? But so. it's funny, because he, he could have seen it with Tyrone Power, and then he could have seen it with Antonio Banderas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but we, oh, are, we are going afield here. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, there's, there's, I mean, as far as, you know, it, this book is, is, is it, it's very consistent. It, it reads like a Gary Friedrich Sergeant Fury. It looks like it's drawn by Herb Trimpey, and I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Herb Trimpey's stuff, and this is right in line with what he was doing on the other books at the time. You know, I mean, the the design of all the al- the uh, the space stations and the, the, sh- the ships and the alien ships, I mean, this this looks like it could have been in an issue of Shogun Warriors. It definitely is his, his style, and I think he's, you know, I think it's a good fit for him. There's a lot of action, you know, there, there's not a lot of... Uh, there's, there's, there's no people talking, just standing around flapping their gums. Everybody's everybody's in action on this, you know, and usually smoking. So that's it's also <laughs> a lot of smoking. But I see yeah. a, I see a big difference between Herb Trimpey on the cover, inked by Joe Sinnott, and Herb yes. Trimpey inside, where it still looks like Herb Trimpey did a nice job with the pencils. But I do not like the Pablo Pablo Marcus inks as much as I like the Joe Sinnott inks. Oh yeah, yeah. Sinnott has a much finer line, especially on the faces. Than uh, than Sinnott does. Then Although you know does, the yeah. thing is, Marcos, excuse me. Yeah, the thing about Marcos over Trimpey, it almost gives it a sort of Kirby look in certain parts of it, uh, especially kind of in Nick's face a little bit. And because uh, Trimpey, to me, when he's really when he's really doing you know, a very Marvel book like this, he always has a bit of Kirby to him. 
In fact, I just talked about this. I did an, um, there's a two issue story in Godzilla where Godzilla is sent back and teams up with devil dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a lot of Trimpy doing Kirby. There's a lot of Kirby crackle. You know, he actually has a one page splash followed immediately by a two page splash. Uh, he's got, you know, the big army charging with the one guy in the foreground looking back. There's a lot of little Kirby touches in it. And so this kind of feels like that. It, there's there's parts of this that look uh, a lot like he's trying to do Dick Ayers. Page 24. A little, yeah. little bit of Dick Ayers and a little bit of mm-hmm. uh, John Severin. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's, you know, so I, I mean, to me, it's like, it, it's, yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, Marcos's inks are um, a bit heavy, but, you know, for a war story, and there's a lot of black in the story anyway, because it's in outer space, you know, it's, it, yeah. it, 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 it I, I can buy it, you know. Oh, it's not bad. I'm not, I'm, I'm yeah, not trying just, to, yeah. I'm not trying to say it's bad. I'm just saying, I think the Synod inks are superior. That's mm. really what it comes down to. I think the uh, Marcos yeah. inks are okay, but the, the Synod inks are superlative. Mm-hmm. And one thing I just real I'm thinking just noticing now that I didn't expect, especially for a one shot Nick Fury story, from beginning to the end, he has two eyes. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't have the eye patch ready, he doesn't lose an eye, doesn't get an eye patch at all during none. Nope. Two eyes yeah. the whole way through. Although half the time he is squinting like Popeye, so it looks <laughs> like he could only have one eye. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember where in the timeline it was that he lost his eye. It was as Sergeant Fury, because they did have the the issue where he lost his eye. Uh, yeah, but I don't but even recall that was where a, that even that was. I be, but I believe that was a retcon because when he shows up the first time as Agent Fury in the pages of Fantastic Four, I want to say he has both eyes still, doesn't he? You know, I don't recall. I don't remember. I, huh. I, I seem to recall that, and I think it got explained away as like, "Oh, that was my LMD" or something like that. So, <laughs> as, as all as all things with Shield are explained away, you know, mm-hmm. and everyone just accepts. Yeah. <laughs> That's Fury's excuse for everything. Oh, yeah. I saw you with that woman. No, it wasn't me. It was the LMD. Sorry. Well, was it me, Countess? You know, it was. <laughs> it's like I was undercover. It's all part of the. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't know why my Sergeant Fury sounds like Krusty the Clown. I don't. I don't know. Why. <laughs> I thought the generals were due. I mean, come on. <laughs> It's he's just a, a gruff guy from Brooklyn, I guess. But uh, so, any any other thoughts on this before we get into the grades? No, I, I, I pretty yeah. much we went through my notes. Yeah. Um, the only oh, thing I, I just want just to add, just by the way, though, I did look. Uh, yeah. Fantastic Four Twenty One Two Eyes. Yep, that's what All I right. thought. Yeah. Yeah, that was the, it. Uh, the only other thing I thought of was I did was amused by Baron Strucker's death. Yes. yes. He he's very much like Sir Sir Hugo Drax from Moonraker, which was. Uh, the same year. Yeah. But actually came out, uh, this came out before Moonraker, because Moonraker came out in the summer of 1979, and this was on stands in January 1979. Well, does, so does Drax die that way in the book? No. Okay. No, does, the book doesn't actually involve, the book involves, um, like, rockets, not spaceships, so he doesn't, there, there's no space travel in the book. Uh-huh. In the book, I want to say Drax is blown up by his own, by his own rocket, if I'm remembering right. It's one of those things where, you know, Bond, he does a, does a spy who loved me and programs the targets to hit their launch sites and all that, you know, mm. so, but, uh, uh, and, and just to your earlier point, Paul, that, you know, they, they initially started this as they're going to change one key moment in continuity and they, you know, they, they started branching out the next issue box next. What if four different people became Nova? 
that's the story. They must have had piles of letters, people demanding to know what would happen if, you know, moderately unsuccessful, uh, you know, solo star Nova got turned into four different people. I have to say so. on, only Linda Harrison is Nova for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere there's a Frankie Ray fan just stewing, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> anybody who doesn't know Linda Harrison is the, uh, actress who played Nova in the planet of the apes movies. Anyway, so uh, Luke, this is your book, so you are first yep. to rate. Okay. Um, oh, and, and one other thing I just thought was funny, there is a, I have the actual issue here in front of me, there is a house ad for Shogun Warriors in this, so it's like, you know, it, it's if you like Trimpy, there you go, there's more of them. So, um, the cover, um, now, a lot of times on, on Back to the Bins, we say that we reserve A's for the iconic classics, and, and if that's the case, this is the highest possible B-plus I can give. It, it's insane. It immediately catches the eye, which is how I, as I said, how I found it. I love the corner box, which is a take on the old Sergeant Fury corner box, except he's now wearing a space fishbowl and has a laser rifle to the point that he even has his sleeve torn. Like the old Sergeant Fury corner box. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I noticed that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't I mean, cause explosive it, decompression at all. Apparently not. You know, I mean, they're already smoking in an oxygen-rich environment, and that's not causing any problems. So. That's true. <laughs> He's too tough for explosive decompression. Uh, you know, but I love the lasers flying everywhere, the star field, all the action going on behind them. You know, uh, I like the I like the guy turning and pointing. You know, uh, um, so I, I, and the cover to me is a B plus. It's just absolutely fantastic, if if not iconic, just because it's so out there. Uh, the art, I'm, I'm also going to give a, a B plus. I think Trippy's in his element here. Uh, plenty of action and fighting, plus the science fiction elements, as I said, that uh, he really liked to draw. Uh, alien spaceships, that sort of thing. Seems to be channeling, as I said, Dick Ayers with some of it, but not really aping him either. It's, yeah, I mean, looking at it, I can I can see Herb Trimpey very clearly in this. Uh, part of that may be just because I've read so many Trimpey comics over the last few years for my show, but um, it definitely looks like a Marvel comic from 1979 in all the best ways. You know, it, it looks like the era that it was produced in and for a group of characters that had their heyday, you know, um, like 12 years prior. I think that that's pretty neat. The story, uh, I, I really like that it takes the premise and treats it 100% straight. This this is a regular Fury and Howard story just set in outer space, like we said. Uh, so it, it doesn't have to rely on the well-trodden and well-known Marvel continuity. It gets right into things. We don't have multiple pages of the Watcher explaining how things actually went. We just have, like, a one page, essentially, of Watcher explaining how things changed. Some of these early what-ifs from Volume 1, you'd get, you know, three or four pages of the Watcher telling you what happened originally. and think, oh, and now we're going to change it. So we don't have that here. It doesn't shy away from the ridiculousness uh, I mentioned Dum Dum's bowler hat and a spacesuit, or all the smoking that we've talked about. Uh, the idea that the brass is a robot, which is hilarious to me. That you know the brass always, you know, never gave the Howlers any credit for what they did, and always had some complaint. And now it's actually a robot. They're not even trying to give them any humanity. <laughs> uh, I, I, I do love that Happy Sam makes an appearance. Uh, that that just brought a smile to my face, even if Sam never has a smile on his face. And, and I like that it used its page count. There's a lot of, because this book is, um, it's pretty thick. I mean, this is what, I think yeah, 46 pages, 48 pages. And there's a lot of story in here. I mean, it's a lot of 
you know, typical kind of war story stuff. But I like that there's there's not a lot of padding in this. It gets it kind of just gets right in and tells a good story. So I give the story an A. Overall, I gave the book an A minus. I uh, did this. I, I had no idea this existed until I found it. And I brought it home and read it that night and just had a huge smile on my face the entire time. So that's a, that's a discount bin win as far as I come from. All right. Who wants to go next? I'll go next. Uh, all right. On the cover, like, you know, like we were saying before, it is, it's a busy cover, but it does it does the job. It get, gets you right into it. Hey, this is Sergeant Fury in space. And look at all the ridiculous stuff that's going on. Uh, you have Dum Dum with his hat. You have Nick smoking. You have Gabe blowing his space trumpet through yes. the helmet. <laughs> <laughs> so it it sets you up perfectly. So yeah, I would say I would say a B plus on that as well. Uh, interior art, I I really liked it. It was very reminiscent of Kirby, especially some of the like we were saying some of the close ups of Nick. It looks like that could have been a, a Kirby face. You know, it, it, either Nick Fury or Ben Grimm or and any of your classic Kirby uh, brawlers. The Yeah, the aliens are kind of on the generic side. And it, what I find interesting is that um, it, there's uh, a picture that is... Sub- that Dino has that is supposedly of a, a girl he has on one of the alpha planets who is also red. Yeah. Which we don't see the picture, but okay. So we have the red aliens fighting the red aliens is maybe a, just change that one word, you know, green skin, <laughs> blue skin, something, <laughs> make it a little more variety. Uh, but uh, Herb Trimpy doing, Space age technology is just—it's right up there. That's that's like that seems to be his his go to thing, and the the, the different ship designs are great. Uh, I'm you know a big Star Blazers fan, so carriers in space makes a lot of sense to me, especially with when they actually have the runways to take off from. Don't know why you need that in space, but <laughs> it's it's classic '70s sci-fi. Sure. <laughs> uh, so I'm gonna give. I'm going to give the the interior art uh, a B, a straight B. The story, yeah, it 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 acknowledges how ridiculous this premise is. It just goes right into it, pointing out the 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 hat problem inside a, a fishbowl space helmet. <laughs> I, I I do like the fact that Fury has the cigar, but he doesn't light it till he gets the helmet off. Yeah, and they make a point of that. <laughs> So he's like my grandfather. He just chews on the thing constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the the best is like I said, Gabe saying, "Yes, I can. I can blow this sonic laser bugle with the force of my breath from the inside of my helmet." <laughs> it it's just it's it's perfect. So I'm I'm gonna give the uh, I'm gonna give the story an A just because I. Every time I thought it was getting you know a little out there, it said, "Oh yeah, we are," and look at what we're doing next. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say that averages out to uh, an A minus. Mm-hmm. Al, you want to go? Sure. All right. So for the cover, I'm giving that an A minus because I have not read this issue ever until tonight. About two hours <laughs> ago, I read it first time, and but 
as I was leaving for work this morning, when I was looking at the messages and I saw somebody say uh, Sergeant Fury in space, I knew exactly <laughs> which cover it was. I've seen this cover before and it has stayed in my brain for like 30 years. So anything like that, where the moment someone says, the what if of Sergeant Fury in space? Oh, I know that one. I can I know that cover already. That's an amazing cover. That's iconic. That's awesome. And like we said, everyone else said, but it's true. It's a busy cover. There's a lot going on, but yet you still have that nice, good focal point right in the center to, po- to focus on so you know what you're looking at. And then you look at all the rest of the stuff going on around. So A- minus for the cover. For the art, I do agree with Paul on the fact that I do prefer the cover, the Senate inks, to the uh, Pablo Marcos inks, but it's still pretty damn good. I mean, I know exactly what's going on. I don't get any confusion about who's what. It's, everything is very, you know, plainly laid out there. It's fo- easy to follow the story. And you can see there, as we were talking about, I, looking back at it, you can see there's having some fun with Nick Fury constantly squinting. So instead of having the eye patch, they keep doing with that. So it's good, solid art, so I'm giving that a B. Story, I go a little bit lower. I go to B-. minus. The first part felt a little long-winded to me. I was like, come on, let's get on with it. And all, But once I got to parts two and three... It just was a really good, entertaining, this is the Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commando story. We're just adding the words in space. But otherwise, if you're entertained by Sergeant Fury and the Commandos, which I generally am, you'll be entertained by this too. So going, adding all that up together, that brings me up to a solid B, which is pretty damn good for an issue. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I think we're all in the same ballpark on this. Uh, I really like the cover, and... I again, I like the I like the pencils and I like the inks on the cover. I think it's really well done. It's laid out really well. It it it, it focuses your eyes on the center, even though there's so much going out on or in around it. But it kind of spreads out from that center. It it it's kind of locks you in on on Nick Fury's fishbowl on his head, and and works from that as the center point coming out. Uh, so it, you know, it gives it that perspective where it feels like everything is moving towards that, away from that, whatever. Uh, so it, it's real easy to follow, despite the fact that there's so much going on. And it, so it's one of these ones where it's appealing to the eye right off the bat, but then if you want, you can focus more on every little bit, and you could sit and you know look at this cover for a while before you're done with it, because there is so much going on. Uh, and I think you know the Joe Sinnott inks really complement Trimpy really, really well. So A-. minus. <coughs> Excuse me. The interior art, I think the pencils are really solid. The the Marcos inks, I just think, are just a little too dark, a little too heavy-lined. Uh, but then it's not terrible. It's just that, you know, in comparison to the cover, it, it falls a little short of that. So while the cover was an A-, I'm going to give the interior art a B. Uh, the story is just silly fun. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm looking at these things with a nostalgic eye or, or a, a fair... Uh, criticism, because this is one that you know I picked up when it was new, and I think I think overall it's just a fun story, but it is one that you know it doesn't have long-lasting effects. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a B, and overall I will give the book a B plus. So that will do it for what if number fourteen. Moving on to our second book, that will be Mister Fo Hendricks. 
All right, going with the uh, whole space theme here, we have Star Trek, the first series by DC Comics, issue number 12. And the cover date on this was March 1985, on sale date... December 13th, 1984, and thank you to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. The writer-slash-co-editor was Mike W. Barr. The artists were Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. Letterer, John Costanza. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman. And the co-editor was Marv Wolfman. On the cover, we have the movie Enterprise firing phasers at the Excelsior in very close proximity. Looks like they're going to crash into them, actually. The now, inside. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you yes. for a second just to discuss the cover a little bit. Yeah. Is the Excelsior that much bigger than the Enterprise? It is not. So the perspective it... is very off here. Yeah. Yeah, because the because the Enterprise is much closer to you as a viewer than the Excelsior is. So based upon the way this is drawn, the Excelsior has got to be twenty five times the size of the Enterprise. Yeah, it, the the perspective is definitely way off on this. In fact, later on in inside the book, you see uh, them act at least the saucer section of the Enterprise right behind the Excelsior, and even that's off because the Excelsior is bigger, but it's not even. It's not even double the size, is it? Yeah, it's not yeah. even fifty percent bigger than the Enterprise, <laughs> as you see in Star Trek Three. It's they're it. It's, yeah, they're in they're in space dock together, and they're not dramatically different. No, no, they're it, it's obviously the more advanced, the the larger ship, but it's it's nowhere near this this much different. <laughs> you know what it is? It's the Enterprise with a beer belly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just bloated. <laughs> It's been on shore leave too much. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, I guess you know you can give some some dramatic license for the way it's drawn, but it's just you know I, I don't know it bothers me a little. Yeah, it's it's not a a very good depiction of the ships. Anyway, moving on on the inside, we start with a captain's log where Captain Kirk, I'm sorry, Admiral Kirk, even though he's wearing the wrong rank in his uniform, uh, Ooh, fills Ad- a- Admiral Kirk. Admiral. <laughs> Admiral. Uh, fills us in that the Mirror Universe crew of the Enterprise has taken over the Excelsior, and his crew has taken over the Mirror Enterprise. As Kirk tries to disengage the All Destruct, the computer tells him that it cannot be halted. And that brings us to our title, The Tantalus Trap. With only a minute left, Kirk orders the crew into the saucer section. With 39 seconds left, we switch to the Excelsior Bridge, where Mirror Kirk is gloating about how he outmaneuvered his counterpart and that he only needs for Spock to return from Vulcan with the secret of the Genesis device. Meanwhile, on Vulcan, Mirror Spock is mind-melding with the recently resurrected Spock. As the two are fighting for mental dominance, we see flashes of scenes of both their lives. One Spock eventually falls, but... Which one is it? Back in space, still at 39 seconds left, Mirror Kirk and crew are waiting for the Enterprise to explode, killing their counterparts and most of the crew on the ship. Mirror Kirk lets out a laugh as the Enterprise explodes, but then orders Savick to do a wide scan, where they discover that Mike W. Barr has read Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise as Kirk used the explosive bolts to detach the saucer before the engines exploded. 
In the Enterprise Captain's Quarters, Scotty and Savick are patching the Tantalus field into the main view screen on the bridge. They're having some problems with the image stabilizer, but they eventually get it fixed. And But for some reason, they've been taking no fire at all from the Excelsior. So Kirk decides to use the Tantalus field and zoom in on the Excelsior's engine room, where they use it to destroy the power converter just as Mirror Kirk decides to open fire. As the Excelsior loses power, Kirk orders Sulu to fire, but the Tantalus field has taken up all the available power. So Kirk assembles a boarding party, leaves Uhura in charge of the saucer, to which she says it's about time. Kirk leads a group on a spacewalk between the Enterprise and the Excelsior. After a very small amount of resistance, the boarding party enters the ship and splits up. Kirk, Chekhov, and McCoy release an anesthetic through the air vents as Scotty makes his way to engineering. On the bridge, Mirror Kirk sees that the autostruct has been activated. He tries to deactivate it, but learns that it is still programmed only for Captain Styles. With the bridge crew knocked out, Mirror Kirk leaves the bridge, vowing that he won't win! I'm assuming he means regular Kirk, not himself. In the corridors, Kirk's group is lost. Shades of Star Trek V. While trying to figure out the way of the bridge, Mirror Kirk ambushes them and shoots Kirk in the arm, but he's protected by his spacesuit. After a bit of a battle where neither Kirk has his shirt ripped, the Mirror Kirk is knocked unconscious. With the Excelsior back under control and towing the saucer of the Enterprise, Kirk and company arrive at Starbase 13 with its Mirror crew in stasis. Savick has uncovered that Mirror Spock, Mirror Sulu, and Mirror Chekhov were sent to Vulcan, though. Kirk contacts Starfleet Command, and Grand Admiral Turner orders him to turn the Excelsior back over to Captain Stiles. Kirk seems to relent, but then says the Excelsior is needed to hold off an invasion from the Mirror Universe. Turner tells, tells Kirk that this is a mutiny, but Kirk doesn't care and cuts the transmission. Uhura reports that the Enterprise crew on Starbase 13 are calling. Bearclaw, Konam, and the other new members created by Muck W. Barr ask to join up with Kirk. He starts to turn them down, but relents and welcomes them aboard. Kirk then calls Commodore Garrett, who somehow hasn't gotten an arrest order for Kirk, wink wink, nudge nudge, and has managed to incapacitate Captain Stiles. And Kirk thanks him for the supplies and refueling. The Excelsior then departs under the cloud of eventual court-martial. They receive a hail, asking them to stop, but Kirk ignores it and proceeds to use the modified trans-warp engines to break the dimensional barrier. We end with a Klingon bird of prey and the speech balloon, We have arrived too late. Next issue, Masquerade. And I could hear that song from Phantom of the Opera right now. <laughs> Me too, that's why I had to mention it. <laughs> I don't know how many people would make that that connection, but it. <laughs> so, what'd you guys think of this one? This is I, I... so convoluted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was. I mean, the basic plot actually work. You know, works well. You know, they especially some of the stuff at the end of them, like, oh, we got we missed the message. Sorry, but yeah. a lot of stuff in the middle. I was like, wait, how did they win? And I was also confused. I actually was thinking when I was reading it, that it was the evil universe doing the spacewalk. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, no, wait, that's the good one. Yeah, part of the problem with it is the only real way to tell the difference between the Mirror Universe crew and the regular crew 
is the uniforms. Uh, the Mirror Universe crew still has the the Earth with the dagger through it as the emblem, and their monster maroons are actually darker than the regular crew. But it's yeah. it's so subtle. Oh, you're right. That it's, it's really hard to miss. And like I said, Kirk is the regular Kirk is supposed to be an admiral. He's supposed to have the admiral rank, but he's got the captain's rank drawn in. And I'm such a huge Star Trek nerd that I I can recognize it right off the bat. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I, it, I had uh, yeah, I, I had a similar confusion. The bit where um, McCoy says, "Jim, what about the crew? Even if your plan works, most of them will die." Uh, I, I I'm still I'm still noodling over whether that was is real Kirk or mirror Kirk because if you look at the the layout of the page the way that that is shot with Chekhov and Sulu sitting in the extreme foreground and then Kirk behind them that's the same layout that's used every time they're in the regular Enterprise right or that... in in the in the mirror Enterprise which is the regular crew so I'm, I'm just not sure what the heck's going on that's <laughs> well for that... a really simple story it was very confusing for me I'm sorry. Yeah, that yeah. that that particular panel actually tells you that it's the regular crew because Zulu and Chekhov are on Vulcan. That's a good point. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so Kirk's wanna... okay. So Kirk's okay with with blowing up everybody and killing all the crew because well, well they're not from here anyway. So right, you know, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're not our crew. <laughs> so eh. what this felt like to me was an early version of writing for the trade. It felt to me like Mike Barr wanted to do something epic, and he came up with the idea of doing the Mirror Universe story. So, in order to take you know that concept and build on it, he had to drag it out a little bit and make it longer. Uh, and I feel like that's why it's convoluted that that he couldn't just get to the point at some moments. Yeah, well, this is also this is issue twelve. The Mirror Universe story started in issue nine. And concludes in issue sixteen. Yeah. Oh wow. So, so it's pretty long. Yeah, we are, we are dead in the middle of it, and the 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 main thrust of this is obviously he wanted to do a mirror universe story because this is the first mirror universe that we've seen since the original episode. Yeah, they haven't. We haven't gotten to that on. Uh, well, actually, has has the next generation ne- even started no. yet at this point? No, that's no. like eighty nine ninety, right? Yeah. Yeah. There is no next gen. There's no DS9. I don't no even. Bloody A, B. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say what movies were out by now. I mean, this obviously is between three, three and out. four, I guess. Or yeah, for, this no between. I guess it's between, between four and, and five, four. right? No, this is between three and four. Because, oh yeah, because he takes back the Enterprise at the end of four. Right. So the the basic idea here is that, and the main thrust of this particular epi- issue is Spock's mind meld with his mirror self is what fixes his mind. And then he can become the regular Spock through the rest of here until they find out what's going on in in the fourth movie and there's a setup in the comics to undo it. To make him have to go back to Vulcan to relearn everything. So it actually, it fits in pretty well between the movies. Oh, well that's good at least. Yeah. I mean, I felt a little guilty because like Paul said, it does feel like it's a writing for the trade. It's a middle issue. And I kind of feel a little bad for my grading for this because I feel like somebody said, here's Lord of the Rings. Read chapters 15 to <laughs> set to 20 and then tell me what yeah. you think. Yeah. I'm like, uh, I don't know. 
Well, because because we've been going on about my shaving and everything, I wanted to do the Mirror Universe story. I'm, I was going through the issues today. And I'm like, okay, not really much happens here. Uh, this really isn't a Mirror Universe. This this one stood out because you had a lot of action. You had the, yes. the actual conflict between the crews. But you need the other issues to actually understand what's going on. So I, <laughs> I felt a little guilty about you know shoving this on you guys. But... Yeah, you, no, you, you know what? Just just to be to to go to that point for a moment, uh, the whole idea is we do random issues. There's, there's nothing that says it has to be a first issue of a story, the last issue of a story, or a standalone story. And and when we, when we rate it, we're rating it on this issue. Right. Or yeah. you know, or you could qualify it and say this issue I think this, but overall I think whatever. But I I don't have a problem with the fact that you picked a middle store middle issue of a story. Uh, it it is a, a little bit of a hard thing to follow, but I think you did a pretty good job of of synopsizing it. So yeah. you know we we got an idea of what's going on, and you know it's it's I actually feel like I have a better idea of what's going on based on your synopsis than I yes. did from reading it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, warning to some people. Whoops, warning some people who might be a bit sensitive to this topic. I kind of want to go find this issue physically, buy it, bring it home, get a black marker, and fix it and put put uh, goatees on all the mirror guys so I can fully follow it. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, you're evil. You're evil. No, you're good. Okay, you get a goatee. What do you do for Uhura? Yeah, she'll get a goatee. Screw it. Yeah. <laughs> We're equal opportunity here. Everyone gets a goatee. Everyone gets a goatee for everybody. I'm, I have to find this issue now. I got to do this. It's, it's, it's like you know, the Blues I, I'm, Brothers I'm with trying. orange whips. Yeah, yeah, orange whip, orange whip, three orange whips. I'm trying to remember there was a next generation era novel that took that introduced the, the mirror universe to the next generation crew, and I'm trying to remember if Riker was clean shaven in the mirror universe. I I, I want to say he was. I don't I don't know that for sure because I haven't read that that story in 15 years. But I, I, I really want to say that Riker was clean shaven. Mirror Riker, evil Riker, had no beard. I think he should be bald and Picard should have hair. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, if I rem- remember the cover of that book correctly, Picard had a goatee. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. I, oh, I think I may have read did that also, one that you're mentioning it. Did he also have a tattoo across his belly with an arrow that said Captain's Log with the arrow pointing down? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Make it so. <laughs> it's totally new context to the Picard maneuver. That's all I can yes. say about that. <laughs> yeah, but as as a piece of the overall story, and really, I want to call the entire Mike W. Bar run as a continuous story because. The, it never stops. There, there's never just a one and done issue. There's always these things working in. Uh, one, of, one of the ones I really liked is where they went back to the the planet from the Apple and discovered that Kirk had essentially made them so warlike that the planet was ravaged and it was uninhabitable practically so it's it's one of those times where kirk said yeah we destroyed your computer and you'll be fine now <laughs> didn't really work whoops <laughs> but yeah it's i i've always enjoyed this because i i see it as in in union with with the actual films because the 
the original the the start of this issue one happens between Star Trek two and Star Trek three. So Savick looks like Kirstie Alley. Then apparently they got win that oh well Robin Curtis has replaced her for Star Trek three and the art slowly morphed Savick from Kirstie Alley to Robin Curtis. So it oh. it it worked really well I thought. Speaking what do you Savick? Sorry, go ahead, Paul. I was just going to say, what do you guys generally think about the, uh, I, you know, we've had a few issues on bins lately where it's been licensed products, or licensed characters, rather, mm-hmm. and we've had some discussions about that, and I'm curious what you guys think about the art of the licensed characters here. Well, I know um, I'm, <laughs> I'm biased, but <laughs> I like it because it's a nice halfway measure. It's not... It's not completely photo referenced, although there are some close ups where you can see like the, the Scotty one of looks Scotty. Little... It's like, yeah, okay, they got him from you know Star Trek three for that scene. But a lot of times it's it's good enough that you can say, Yeah, that's Kirk. It's not a spitting image of William Shatner, but it's also not a cartoon. It's just, yeah, I can see Kirk in there. Uh, I can definitely see Sulu and Uhura and every but they're not it's not like I can say, oh, well, that's from, you know, minute 33 of Star Trek 2, you know, some, something like that. So I, I think it, it, it straddles the line very well. I think this, the Spock battle art looks good. Mm. Uh, I don't like Kirk's hair. It looks like he's got a perm. Have you seen Star Trek 2? I have. No, he, he, didn't, he didn't have a perm. He had, well, it, he, he, had a, he had a thick, bushy wig, but he didn't have a perm. His toupee was permed. <laughs> Uh, I, I I don't think his hair looks the way it did in the movies, mm. uh, but otherwise I, I think the art is pretty good. I think the you know like you say I think it, it straddles the line well, even even when it has the occasional what appears to be Photoshop uh, not Photoshop photo referenced uh, picture. It doesn't look bad to me. The the and one of the big keys to me is that the movement looks the same as it would in a in a comic that didn't have uh, licensed characters. A lot of times right. with, with the licensed characters, because they photo-reference so much, there's a stiffness to the way that they're drawn. And I don't see that here. And that's one of the biggest things to me that, that makes it good. Uh, my biggest problem is the perspective on the size of the ships. Which yeah. We've already talked yeah. about some. Yeah. Well, speaking as somebody who's not the biggest Star Trek fan, I have no dislike for it, but I'm just not really well-versed in it. But I was able to at least... Without even seeing the words, I knew exactly who everyone was. So the art at least did get convey that across. Definitely, is that I knew who was Spock, I knew who was Kirk, I knew who was Uhura and Sulu. I didn't have to go who was that. It did convey to me without being photo reference, like you said, who everyone was, which is the important thing. You know, we mm-hmm. need to know who they are. Um, but what I was going to say before, speaking of Savick, was it a story point or was it a typo that every time they say Savick, they say Mister Savick? No, no that's, that's that goes all the way back to Star Trek Two. Every everybody, regardless of gender, is referred to as Mister. Okay. Until Janeway. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I'm hey, You know. <laughs> I, I I I'll get. I mean, I love Voyager, so that's not a, that's not a bone of contention for yeah. me. That's. Uh, but in any event, no. I mean, I, I like the art also. Like I said, the the main problem that I had was, like like you had said, Gene, is that it's tough to tell. The, the regular universe versus the mirror universe characters just because they didn't that there's not enough differentiation in their presentation in their uniforms and their colors at least not in um in in this pdf 
which um, I'm, I'm assuming is from that that really wonderful Star Trek uh, comics collection DVD that you can get out there. It is. Um, <laughs> Which, which, yeah, which is which is great because it, it and it's fully it's legit it's fully licensed and all that. So, but uh, it's just it was just hard to tell. Now, if you take this art style and you tell a story that doesn't involve the mirror universe, any other type of Star Trek story, then this art is perfectly good because uh, as as Al was saying, I, I recognize everybody. Everyone looks on model enough without it being oh well that's like you were saying this is this is clearly from this scene or that scene that it looks like a Star Trek comic. So it looks a lot better than some of the gold key and Marvel Star Trek comics I've read. <laughs> so <laughs> including those Voyager ones, which it's really just a little suspect in the art in some places. So <laughs> when you mention the gold key ones, you're not setting the bar very high. <laughs> no, but, but there's also a Marvel one where on the cover Spock is saying that gnomes don't exist. And like there's gnomes and goblins in the story and stuff. So mm-hmm. I know exactly you know, the one you're I, talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. My my friend Adam found that at Heroes Con many many years ago, and he said, uh, "He says I don't know what this is about, but I've got to buy it." <laughs> <laughs> In which case, the cover does its job. Does its job. Yeah. All right. I guess it's time to put put some letter grades on this one. All right, my book. I will go first. Uh, cover. If you take the ships on their own. They're done very well. The, this is my favorite version of the Enterprise. Uh, like we were saying, no bloody A, B, C, or D. Uh, motion picture version. And it it looks great flying in. The Excelsior in the background, you know, very detailed, looks good. You put them together, and oh boy, is it off. <laughs> it's just... Uh, if you go to, to the other example of this is pay, story page 19 where the Excelsior is towing the saucer section of the Enterprise, and it looks minuscule. It looks like a Frisbee behind a battleship. And it's just, it, that's that's too far off. The, they were much, much closer in size. And, and really, if you had, if you picked this up when it was on the stands, you would look at it and say, this doesn't make any sense. You know, if you hadn't read any anything prior, because you know that the Enterprise was destroyed in Star Trek Three, which is where they introduced the Excelsior. So, you know, you look as like, okay, what's going on here? So, for for all that, I'm going to have to give it a a C minus on the cover. Now, the interior art, I I like much better. Um, that only that one panel where you have the the size difference is so obvious is is a an issue like i said for the the i was able to pick up the coloring differences also i have read this you know this issue at least three times already so i i know what i'm looking for and the like we're saying the likenesses are close enough they're not cartoony they're not super photo referenced everything moves like it should uh you you get the action going on it's it's Really nice. I'm going I'm going to give the art inside a B, and the story for just this issue is it. It's kind of all over the place because it's trying to do two different things at once. It's trying to give you the Enterprise Excelsior battle, and it's trying to give you Spock versus Spock, and I think it gets a little muddled in there. 
Mug W. Barr does a great job. Like I said, he obviously did his research because he knew the Enterprise had explosive bolts at the, the top of the connecting neck. So, yeah, I I feel bad about it, but I'm going to have to give it a, a B- on, on the story. So that, I would think, actually, that only averages out to, I think, a C-plus on the book. Okay. Who's next? Uh, I'll, go. I'll go ahead. Oh, okay, go, go ahead. ahead, Al. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody wants to talk Star Trek. Uh, so the the cover, um, uh, yeah, I mean the cover. I, I gave a C. I mean it's it's not overly exciting. The the layout with the two ships on top of like like layered on top of each other it doesn't really do it for me. And the size perspective looks all off. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan. Like, the coloring's a little. A little strange too, so I just gave the cover a C. It's an average Star Trek cover. Uh, neither uh, repulses nor excites me to pick up the issue. <clears throat> the art I, I also gave a C. I, I think it's average. It's it's not great, but for a licensed book, I think it's pretty good. The characters are recognizable. Uh, there's a few a few panels where the action looks pretty stiff, but there's a few panels where the action looks pretty pretty fluid. So uh, I really like the the whole sequence with Spock and Spock, uh, which, which sounds like a sitcom. But um, which I'd totally watch. But it get uh, get the guy from Heroes and uh, well, never mind. But anyway, so I, I there were parts of the art I liked, but it was nothing great. Nothing really jumped out at me. It, it, again, it looked like standard DC Star Trek comic, which to me never is all that exciting visually. So I give that a C. Um, the story I, I get a C plus. It being that it's kind of the blow off of this particular portion of the story. So the story itself is fairly perfunctory that's you know them, them trying to do some science stuff in order to win the day it not all of it really makes a lot of sense it was kind of hard to follow for me because of some of the things switching back and forth and not being clear which crew we were looking at um but again i like the bit with the spocks fighting there's some some nice dialogue bits uh, i like um evil kirk uh calling kirk jim in quotes i thought that was pretty clever like he was mocking the fact that he's on a first name basis with his his crew uh, so overall, I gave it a C. I gave the book overall. It's a okay Star Trek story taken on its own. It would I, I'm assuming it'd be better in the context, like we discussed, or if it had more Star Trekky aspects to it. You know, they're not really to me. Star Trek is about you know sometimes solving a problem, not always shooting your way out of a problem. You know, so uh, they they use I guess a little bit of you know strange anomaly anomalous energy to solve a problem but it didn't it wasn't the most star trek-esque story that i had read in a star trek comic so i just gave it a c oh not a bad book but uh nothing really super exciting if i had picked this one up randomly i don't know that i would go and hunt down the next one all right so i guess i'll go then so cover i guess it helps then that i'm not the biggest star trek person because i didn't know which ship was what? I actually just would have. I actually just kind of assumed that the Enterprise was the little one. It is, and I wasn't even sure. It oh, is, okay. yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Then never mind. See, I'm a little mixed up with that anyway. So, but I'm like, I didn't know one was supposed to be closer in size than the other. I wasn't sure. You know, it just was like, oh, ships fighting, shooting each other. It's not bad, entertaining enough. I gave it a straight up B, just because I'm like, I had no idea what was going on. But I'm like, all right, ships shooting each other, I can buy that. Mm. Uh, for the art, I gave it a C plus. There were some things that were a bit stiff, which I do notice a lot. Like you said, that does happen quite a bit, it seems like, with uh, licensed properties. But at least I knew who everyone was. And um, the Spock part was really good. I did enjoy the Spock thing a lot. But 
one of the problems with the art, of course, was especially because of their, they're using mirror image characters, and I was having trouble differentiating which one's which visually. So that drops it down a bit because I'm getting a little lost in the story going, wait, now who is this again? This is good. You're good. You're bad. So that drops it down. And the story, I give a C. The basic premise of the story sort of works, but some of that stuff in the middle kind of, I kind of felt like it was that South Park thing. It was step one, we got to fight the mirror guys. Step two, I was a little lost with, but step three, they won. And then some of that stuff afterwards, and they won. I did enjoy that that act. Actually, I enjoyed that part after the battle a bit more than before the battle with the whole, you know, routine of oh, we must have lost that message, and oh yeah, no, I guess we're gonna have to go. Oh, we didn't see you. Sorry. <laughs> I was entertained enough with that to at least bring it up. Bring it up. Plus the Spock part definitely was a nice little in the middle of okay, I know what's happening here. I can definitely follow this part. That's good. That's bad. Here's his story. You know, here's his life story right here in the center page spread. So that helped me out quite a bit. Although, like I said, I do feel a little bad with the ratings because it's like I'm rating the, you know, the middle chapters of a book, and I'm rating the whole book on that. You know, maybe if I read the whole story, I might give it a little higher overall. But so for now, for this issue individually, it averages out to a C plus. Okay. Uh, I don't dislike the way either ship is drawn on the cover. Uh, I do have issues with the. Excelsior being a pale blue. Uh, I, I really don't get that. I can deal with the yellow haze on the Enterprise thinking, you know, maybe that's reflections off of a star or something. I don't know. Uh, but the, the pale blue just looks weird. Uh, and I can't forgive the perspective because I'm thinking the end, that the Excelsior is 20 to 25% bigger than the Enterprise. And yet, as drawn here, it's like 25 times the size of the Enterprise. <laughs> so it's it's just, you know, it, to me, that's unforgivable. There's there's no reason for that. There's, there's ways they could position it to make it dramatic and have the perspective be appropriate. So that's going to drop it a full letter grade for me. And I think if they had been drawn the right size, this, this would be a B cover, but it's a C cover because of that. I even like the angle the Enterprise is coming in, and it's uh, scattering its uh, phaser blasts. I'm not crazy about the effect of the phaser blasts on the uh, Excelsior, though. It almost looks like wads of bubblegum being thrown at it. Uh, so it's, it's just a C. The interior art, I feel, is a step up from that, with the exception of you know, as as Gene pointed out, there's another perspective shot of the two ships that looks bad. But otherwise, I feel like it's pretty solid. Uh, I'm going to give the interior art a B-. minus. I think it's, it's pretty good. The story, I'm at a little bit of a loss for it because it is the middle story. So I'm going to qualify it. I'm going to say, as is, just picking up this issue and reading it, this is a C story. But I feel like if I read all, whatever it is, 10 issues of this uh, in one sitting that I would be giving it a higher grade. Uh, but, you know, we got to rate it for what, what we have in front of us. So I'm going to give it a C. And overall, I'm going to give the book a C plus. And that'll... We're all, I'm sorry. all about the same there, I think. Yeah, yeah pretty just, close. Yeah. So that'll, that'll take us out of Star Trek, but we are not leaving space. As Al... See, I get to, to have no book today, which is just so nice. I feel like Bill... Uh, <laughs> are you gonna start singing <laughs> nobody wants that 
<laughs> so, Al, what did you bring for us today? Okay, I brought, yep, another space book. Um, it's technically an indie because it's published by Epic. You know, we're going to ignore the fact that it's owned, that's owned by Marvel. Uh, Dreadstar number 11. Well, from... just before you go into the book, the Epic line mm-hmm. was Marvel's concession to have people have uh, creator-owned projects that they would produce. So, you know, this this was Jim Starlin's uh, ability to present his Dreadstar series published by Marvel, but that he keeps his rights. Yep. So it's kind of like the uh, somewhat like Vertigo. Yes. Without the uh, license, without the uh, company properties like Sam yeah. and Doom Patrol. I think they did do a couple of epic. Well, there was that one in the actual Epic magazine. They had the Silver Surface story. So I don't know. I don't know if they actually produced any Epic series, uh, you know, with normal universe characters. Though I don't think they did. Yeah, I don't know enough about that to answer that beyond the Silver Surfer one. I knew about that, but that's it. All right. So sorry to interrupt you. No, that, that's quite all right because I'm still work. I'm still figuring it out in my head because. I because of the schedule of work and everything, and you know, finding this out as I'm leaving, I only read this at eight thirty. <laughs> so we're working on synopsis as I go. So bear with me. <laughs> That's bill like. <laughs> we're splitting the bill bill jobs. You have no book. I'm just barely prepared with the book. <laughs> we love I, you, we Bill. Have... <laughs> it takes two of us to fill your shoes. Well, there might be big shoes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dreadstar number 11, like we said, published by Epic. The cover date was Ju- uh, June 1984. On sale date was April 24th, 1984, with a whopping $1.50 cover price. And basically, everything here was done by Jim Starlin, with the exceptions of the letters by James Novick. Colors was Christy uh, Scheel, and Archie Goodwin was the editor. And the my random generator picking this issue did really well because this issue is called Origin, and it is a complete one-shot story that kind of gives us a basic idea of what's going on in the background of this whole Dreadstar story. We start in a world called Titanus, where the... What is his name again? Basically, Space Pope, evil Space Pope, um, has conquered the planet, and they kind of split up the people into productive and non-productive. And the non-productive people, there's way more than they expected, so it's going to take them a while to execute them all. So he uses his magical abilities to kill all of them at once, thousands of them. And then he, all of a sudden a space warp opens up, and one of his um, men, Cardinal Spidar, shows up. He had been trying to kill our lead character, Dreadstar, and his crew. Failed, and apparently had vanished. Shows back up in this portal. Evil Space Pope is ready to kill him, because he's a failure, but he tells him, I know how to defeat them. So now he wants to, this man protected and uh, healed back, to, brought back to health, so he can help him to short, defeat his enemies. While he's waiting for that, he realizes they're over a planet that he was from, and he starts to reminisce about his childhood. His mother was human. His father was an alien. Was not really liked on that pop, on that planet to have fraternize with aliens. They were gonna leave together until Dad's spaceship crashed and he died. So mother and child are stuck on this planet where instantly she loses her job, they're ostracized, everyone hates them, he's almost killed on a daily basis until some guy randomly shows up, decides to smash open their door in a fit of hatred and beat mom to death. And he's acquitted in about two hours because no one cares. Our poor child at the age of nine, ten years old is sent to work in the sewers. Uh, his boss guardian basically beats him. 
as he as it says his favorite saying was beat hard the child you'll keep him mild <laughs> he grows to hate this guy but he does have one friend the man's niece lena she at least is, shows him kindness and he does he falls in love with her though she never knows that eventually another guy shows up named tribecus londo he's part human part alien but they don't care about him being part alien so much because he's really rich so that makes it okay He's part, he's a, uh, they're not really sure what, the people of the planet aren't really sure why he's there. They think he's just there for, maybe he's um, setting up business, maybe he's going to run for politics. He eventually finds this kid and hires him and to take him out of the sewers to work for him. Turns out, the universe is split up into two fractions, the monarchy and the instrumentality, which is basically a whole religious uh, government. He works for the instrumentality, and they also deal with magic, and he can sense this kid is great magic. So he wants the kid to go with him. And he knows this planet will be an important way station one day for the monarchy, but that can't happen. So it has to be destroyed. Kid's fine with this, but he does want to at least bring his uh, quote-unquote girlfriend along, because he loves her. He doesn't want her to die. But when he tells her about his love, she not only rejects him, she rejects him with abject horror and disgust. And so he has no problem whatsoever planting the explosive that they need to, which basically destroy a plant, killing everyone inside, and releasing poisonous methane gas, killing everyone on the planet, and we see including her. Talks briefly then how he's brought to this church because they're in war. He uh, raises through the ranks quickly, eventually becoming one of the second in commands to their evil pope until that evil pope unfortunately suffers an accident with, you know, poison, drinking a poisonous drink. You know how it goes. Happens all the time. That old story. And now he's in charge. Eventually, he communes with his gods and actually meets them. He doesn't actually think they are gods. He realizes that they're just more powerful aliens. But for the power they're willing to give him, he doesn't care if they're gods or not. He's willing to deal and do what they say for his power. So right now, he's just waiting for this guy to be healed. And his head cardinal brings him his food, including a glass of wine. And he looks at it and he goes, maybe not. Knock, drops it and decides to go to his chambers to uh, meditate on his own. The end. Interesting story. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I have some Dread Star issues, or I've had some Dread Star issues, uh, but I've never sat down and read them before. I don't know why. Uh, I, I mean, and I am a fan of Jim Starlin, his stories, his art. I, I, I am a big fan of both, so I don't know why I never went into this before. I, I guess it's just a lack of familiarity with the characters that it just never pulled me in for that reason. But this is, I mean, this is kind of typical Jim Starlin stuff where, you know, there's definitely an edge to it and definitely some commentary uh, about society and how they look at people and how people interact. Uh, this, is a, this is a good story. I like this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I like Jim Starlin a lot, too. I'm a, I'm a, I met him a few years ago at uh, Heroes Con. He's actually a, a pretty nice guy to talk to if you ever get a chance to talk to him at a con. But uh, I've, I've, I, I know Dreadstar. I, I may have a few issues, but I've never read it because I, I think it was just before my time. Because you know, I started reading comics kind of in the early '90s, and by that time, Epic was kind of defunct, at least in the, the 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 format that it was here for Dreadstar. But I really enjoyed this. I, I thought this was uh, a really good insight into this guy. And even though I'm assuming that he's done all sorts of awful things being the head bad guy who's trying to exterminate the title character. You know, you, you do feel for him, and you understand where he's coming from and all that. 
And I like a lot of the sci-fi trappings that Starlin puts into this because it, there's you can see echoes of some of the other stuff, not only that he had done prior, but some of the stuff he would do afterwards. Uh, the talk of, you know, uh, the fact that this guy is, uh, the, the, they call him the, the, uh, the lordship, and he's the lord, high lord papal, and he's the pope to these space aliens. You know, one thing Starlin did at DC much later was he had, what, the Church of Universal Truth? And uh, that's, a, uh, that's Adam Warlock, the Church of Truth. Mm-hmm. Oh, then, then it, but there, then there's another one. There, there's one over on DC that he did at Hardcore Station. And oh, then yes. eventually in. Yes, that's it's, right. It, it, yeah, so, so the idea of a, of a space church, you know, that, that I always loved that one because they were, uh, again, I'm blanking on the name right now, but they always had, uh, they, their, their mantra was praise the prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. Mm. Which is, yes, I, which I, remember, is what, I remember that. I forget what it's called yeah. too, but I know what you're talking about. Right. So the, that idea, that's another kind of Starlinism, you know, mm. and there, there's a great page in here where the, the High Lord Papal is just standing with his arms clasped behind his back. And it's like, yep, that's what you do. That is what you do when you're a, a big, bar, broad shouldered guy in a Jim Starlin book. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's a few themes that Starlin likes to use um, in case you've not read enough Starlin. Starlin's not a big fan of organized religion. No. <laughs> <laughs> As we can tell from all these, from what the one you're talking about, this story, uh, the Universal Church of Truth and Warlock, he's not a big fan. He's not I mean, quite they, as snarky as Monty Python about it, but I think they have similar attitudes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, he's bring, I mean, he has people being crucified right here. They're crucifying people right on panel. It's not even... Yeah, but it's just not quick enough for him, so he's got to eliminate them all himself. Uh, well, that first page, a pile of skulls. Yeah, this, yeah. This, that's yeah. like, uh, to me, that's reminiscent of the Terminator. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But this, yeah, this 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 is a very dark issue. But you know, like I said, he, he does have his social commentary in here. Uh, I, I get a kick, and Al, the last time we did a, a bins together, we did that. Uh, we did a we did the Thanos score, and we did oh, a yes. Starlin book, and and I was commenting then about how uh, Starlin has his kind of his stock alien faces that he does, and you see them, you see a couple of them in the. Uh, the one here where, where he's meeting with the the what's it called the the gods or the more mm. sophisticated aliens or whatever they are, uh, especially on the first page of it, uh, definitely looks to be Isaac on the middle right. Yeah, yeah, and, and the one guy also looks a bit like Tomar Ray. Yes, and then then you got <laughs> at the at the upper left, it almost yes. looks like an older version of uh, of, of Star, Star uh, what's uh, what's his name Star Fox. And then, and then the the all the way in the corner in the upper right, I, I can't even think of who, what name that is, but the, that's another character that's that the, we saw in Warlock. That's the alien where his whole body is the head. Yes, it kind of looks like all like it. No, that not all like us, but another one. But yeah, you can see a lot of his similarities with his faces, obviously. And let's face it, the Lord High Papal is basically Thanos with uh, you know bleached skin, <laughs> and you know some you know creases you know ironed out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's very, very Thanos-like. Yeah, and and you know, and and Starlin would continue with this because later on he would introduce Sinar, and then Sinar would go would become a stand-in for you know the same type of character later, and then Sinar would become even more powerful, He'd become a godlike being in his own right. So you know, it's it's some you know you expect certain things and certain themes. So it's it, that that helped me reading this because even though again I was reading completely out of context, knowing that it was 
um, that it was a Jim Starlin story, I could ex- I could make kind of connections that I might not necessarily make if I wasn't as familiar with the creator. You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. like, okay, th- this guy is a, if, if he's a villain in a Starlin piece, I can expect certain things. He's going to be this, you know, controlling, dominating guy. He's going to be really intelligent. He's going to be thoughtful. He's going to know what the score is. He's not going to fly off the handle. And that's the way that the Lord Papal behaves. Mm-hmm. And so when he's being, when he's ruminating about his past, he's being thoughtful about his past. It's like, okay, you could see a story with Thanos or Sinar or even Darkseid was, you know, when Starlin would write the new gods, you could see him behaving in a very similar way. So I, I I like that. I again, even though it's it's a it's a kind of a common element in a lot of his work, it made it 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 brought some enjoyment to the story for me. So I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, it, yeah. it made it something that you could. It, it kept it from being forbidding, uh, based mm-hmm. on the fact that you weren't unfamiliar with the property. Well, yeah. even you know, I'm somewhat familiar with the property. I've read I think three Dreadstar issues, but I don't know who the heck this guy is. <laughs> this is the first time. But I, you do now. I do now, and what I like about it is, you know, like we were saying, it gives you the background of this guy where you can understand why he he is where he is, but he's still crucifying people. Right. So you can't yeah. sympathize with him. You understand, <laughs> yeah, this is what made him that way, but he's not a likable guy. You know, it's not like you're reading Doctor Doom here, where you can kind of see where he he might have wait, a point. Wait, wait, now, this wait, guy wait. does. Doctor Doom is a likable guy. <laughs> well, if Remember. your name is Professor Allen, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm 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 sorry. I'm not the mirror gene. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but yeah, that there's a trick to that, uh, and and by trick I mean there's, a, there's it's it's not easy to do. You have to be a talented writer. To make somebody villainous and yet have you empathize with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can you empathize you with his background. Yeah, you don't right. agree with his actions in any way, shape, or form, but you can understand why. And and to me, that's quality writing because that's that's writing a three dimensional character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see why this man needs to be killed, and that I'm assuming at some point Dreadstar will probably end up killing him. And I don't have a problem with that, but you can feel bad for the child that he was, that this, you know, he had to go through that and become this. Well, you could even feel sorry for him as an adult when he gets uh, rejected by that that woman who he's trying to save. Yeah, like the one decent, it it looks like it's the one good thing he's done, or tried to do actually, was save her. And, well, that that didn't work, so screw it, I'm going to go full evil. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and this was, was, I'm glad I randomly picked this one that I had access to. Because I've only read, now this would be the third issue of Dreadstar I read. I picked up two randomly at the last Comic-Con I was at over the summer, at the Tampa Bay Comic-Con. And, because I'd never read that before either, Dreadstar. It was mostly coming out before and right when I was starting to read comics. So I was just getting into Marvel, branching out into DC. I haven't yet, you know, gone into independent stuff. And then when it was coming, I know he came back out with Dreadstar in the mid-90s with, uh, what was that thing he did with uh, Dark Horse? I think it was under, like, Brova or something. Brava. I'm not sure. I don't there's, know. <laughs> there's a couple of other creators had like their own books coming out from Dark Horse briefly, but I was starting college then. I was broke. I was at that point. I was broke. I was down to the bare minimal, like one or two comics here and there. So I wasn't grabbing rent, you know, things I didn't know. So mm-hmm. I never really had a chance to read Red Star. But considering the fact that I have done now with my podcast a lot of Jim Starlin stuff, you know, we focus on Starlin a lot. I figured maybe I should give it a try. And I did like the two issues I've read so far, and now this one, 
you know, fills in the gaps a lot of what the background is of that whole universe, too. It doesn't kind of just fill you in of who the bad guy is. It kind of gives you a whole idea of the backdrop of this whole story. Right. You know, right, you know yeah. the world. You know this whole world. Now, you know what's going on there, which is a, an excellent thing to do in one issue. Oh, yeah. That doesn't mm-hmm. feature your main cast, obviously. Yeah, I, I really, yeah, I'm going to give my, my giveaway early. I'm going to have high grades on this one. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so am I. And I felt like I was going to say I'm a, I feel a bit biased, but well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't do a podcast that focuses on Jim Starlin, but I am a Jim Starlin fan. I don't think I've ever read anything by Jim Starlin that I thought, oh, that was awful. I, to, well, <laughs> I I didn't like the Infinity uh, Crusade. I have to say that's that might be my my lowest point with Starlin. Yeah, that's my least favorite one, but I've only read it the one time, so we'll see when I get to it. And I mean, not, not my show is not a Starlin show, but it's an Adam Warlock Thanos show. There's going to be a lot of Starlin there. Yeah, you just have to accept that. If you don't like Starlin, it's not the show to. It wouldn't be the show to do then. And I'm thinking the Infinity Crusade was more a marketing-driven idea than a. You know, I I get the feeling that that you know. In order for Starlin to write something close to what he wanted to write, they had to, you know, he had to give in to the, they're wanting to do all sorts of crossovers and other things in there that I think probably diluted it and made it, you know, not as good as it could have been if he had done it on his own. Yeah, because I did enjoy some of the other stuff he did after, a few years later where he didn't have to deal with all the tie-ins, like Marvel The End mm-hmm. and one of the other two Infinity ones he did where he got to just do the six-issue story on his own and that's it. Yeah. But although I did like uh, Infinity War, which had a lot of crossovers to it, so mm-hmm. it could be hit and miss. Anyway, but let's get back to this one, and oh, yes. I guess it's time for you to rate this one. Yes. Okay. Cover? I like... Uh, it's a good cover. I have no idea who this guy is, just when I first you know looked at it, but it kind of tells you everything you need to know. He's an evil SOB, mm. and he's a mean, nasty one. There's... Um, my only downside for it is it does, it does seem like there's a bit lacking in some detail of him, but then again, this character doesn't have much detail. But I still think it's a good cover, but pretty damn good, so I give it a B plus. Story, and well, the art is excellent. The art is Starlin at some of his best, doing some of his best stuff, I think. It's really well done. I love the details. I mean, that first page, not just the close-up of the guy, and his, the, or Lord Papal, and his head guy giving the report... But you can see all the guys being crucified in the background. You see all the skulls back there, including the one guy dumping more skulls from the bucket. And the buildings back there. I really do love the art in this issue. So I'm giving it a full up A. The story, like we said, the story is really easy to follow. It gives me, even though it's issue 11, it's a good one-shot story. It tells us everything we need to know about the main villain of the piece and also the universe of the story. I'm giving this a straight up A as well, so basically I'm giving the whole thing an A. Makes it easy. <laughs> I think it's a really solid cover. Uh, it, it's something where you see it and you're intrigued by it, so that's one of the most important things. It's something that makes you want to see what what is this guy about, what's going on here. Uh, so I'm going to say I'm going to say a B plus on the cover. Not quite iconic. Uh, the interior art, I think, is excellent. I think it's really well paced. I think it moves along at a, uh, you know, a, a, in a, there's there's so much in this, and yet it moves along at a fairly brisk pace, just the same, uh, you know, through whatever it is, thirty something pages of story, and it it really 
just you, you you don't feel like you're lost at all. It's just moving along and it, it's doing really well. Uh, and some of the detail is is really well done as well. So I'm gonna say an A on the interior art. And the story is just very cool, especially, you know, like you said, it's issue 11, so you're jumping in in the middle of something. We don't know anything about these characters, and yet it felt very accessible. So I'm going to say an A on that, and I'm going to give the book overall an A. All right. right. (laughs) Good, Gene. Okay. Um, Yeah, like I said, I've read a couple issues of Dreadstar. I haven't really seen this character, but if you look at the cover, uh, that... Like Al said, that gives you just about everything you need to know. I mean, he's got this evil grin looking at his hands, which are where the light is coming from. So obviously he's got some type of power going on there. Uh, it, it grabs your attention. You look at it and say, hmm, I would like to know more about this guy. And this is the perfect issue for that. So, yeah, it, it, it does its job, gets me involved. Um, it's It's simple, but it's not. That's not a bad thing. Simple can be good if it's done effectively, and Starlin is really good at that. So, I'm, yeah, I'll give that an A. Uh, the interior art, uh, you know, minus the Archie Goodwin cameo. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that a lot, though. That is yeah. great. <laughs> I love that. And it made me a little sad, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the interior art is... Yeah, it's it's Starlin doing some great stuff, and yeah, you know, I I first came across Starlin with the Infinity Gauntlet, as I'm sure a lot of people did, and it, mm-hmm. this is this is just it's right up there. I can I can see like you were saying, Al, I can see uh, Thanos in any one of these pages, uh, but yeah, it, it can. It, what I like about it is it's obviously fantastic. It's obviously out in space. And all this, but everything looks real. You have uh, the the little, you know, the children all look like real children. They, everyone here looks like a real person. No one is so outlandish as to throw it off. Like, oh, that that could never exist. It it has this nice grounded quality. Which makes it a, a much better story, in my opinion. So, yeah, I'm, I'm giving the art uh, an A as well. And the story, it, not, for not knowing a whole lot, except that Dreadstar's a, a, in the, the Star Wars parlance, Dreadstar is the Rebel Alliance. Uh, th- this is, you know, this gives you a nice background as to the evil empire or one of the evil empires, I'm not sure about the monarchy, that he's fighting. And this is a formidable foe. Uh, The heroes come up against him. They are going to have a hard time just one-on-one. And the fact that he commands fleets of ships and, I'm guessing, millions of troops. Yeah, this is going to be a tough one. Uh, But you get his background. Like I said, you you don't feel like whatever he's doing is right but you understand why he is doing it and it's it's a it's a great primer for the entire series and the fact that it's an issue 11 makes me wonder what issues one through ten were so yeah i'm i'm gonna give the story an a and that's like you guys it's just straight a all the way through all right um just to close the loop earlier uh, the outfit that I was thinking of from Starlin's work on like Hardcore Station and Ran Fanagar Holy War was the Eternal Light Corporation. That's it. That mm. 
Yes, and they were the ones that said Deacon Dark was head of the uh, Eternal Light Corporation and was praised to profit. That was what he always said. That's why, if you go on my Twitter, my my uh, icon is still to this day Sinar the Demiurge, and on my profile it does say praised to profit because I I'm a big fan of of Rand Fenegar, Holy War, and Sinar the Demiurge. But but yeah. in any event. Um, I may be the only one. I, I actually asked Jim Starlin to sign my copy of the Hawkman special from the Rand Vanegar Holy War, and he said, you're the only person who's ever asked me to sign this, and I'm very <laughs> proud of that. <laughs> uh, but getting into Dreadstar number 11, the cover, um, it's very stark. You know, it's it's just uh, almost all black and white. There's a little bit of red in his eyes, and there's a little bit on his uh, shoulders where it's not completely washed out. Um, I, I like it. It's it 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 really at first glance it seems a little simplistic, uh, but it's not. Uh, it, like you said, Gene, being simple doesn't mean necessarily a bad thing here. Mm. So I give the cover a B plus. It's certainly one that if you were flipping through uh, a stack of books and it came up, you would you would stop and look at it just because of the the high contrast with the black and the white. And it, it really uh, the lack of color is going to make it stand out. Normally. Uh, you know, a lot of times we have a lot of color on covers, so this is the opposite of that. So I, I give the cover a B plus. I thought it was was really good. Uh, the art, um, as I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jim Starlin, uh, so that not much is required to get me to like his art. Uh, I like his use of repeating panels, like when Spider comes through the portal, and then later we see one of uh, of the the Lord Papal walking away, and we get the repeated panels uh, across mm-hmm. the width of the page. I think that's a really nice design touch. I like that we get different size panels so that the pages aren't, no two pages are laid out the same way. Uh, and there's varying different, um, you know, page layouts, depending on whether we're in the present with his thoughts or in the flashback. So I, I thought that was nice. Uh, the art is really good. So I give the art just a straight up A. I think it's, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I said, I'm a sucker for Jim Starlin's art. So uh, I may be more prone, but um, I'm, I'm down with it. Uh, the story I, I really like the story because, as I said, even having never read Dreadstar, I now feel that I really have a good sense not only of this character, but of the world that this story takes place in. And, you know, at least some part of the conflict and, and what this guy's role in it is. And Dreadstar obviously is the guy opposed to this guy. So, um, you know, the, all, the, all the stuff like we were saying about feeling some empathy for this awful person that we know does all this awful stuff is a, you know, it's, it's a good trick if you can pull it off. And Starlin, I think, does a, a very uh, commendable job of that. Uh, it's easy to follow, you know, even though there's some broad concepts in here. And nothing, it doesn't get bogged down in itself. It's very cleanly written. So I gave the story an, an A, and overall, I, the book got an A-. minus. I thought this was a really enjoyable uh, read. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect, frankly, when, when Al made this suggestion, but I'm, I'm glad you brought it because uh, it, it introduced me to something new that I may have to track down some more of. Mm. It's definitely making me want to track down some Dreadstar stuff and go pick that up. So oh, yeah. Did its job. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Good choice, huh? Um, why don't you guys tell everybody where they can find you before we sign off? I'm right in my room. But <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, say, I don't believe that's any of your business, Paul. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what next? Ask what kind of, what, whether I'm wearing pants? Thanks. It's just rude. It's, uh, I'm sorry. All I could think of always is that bit on Family Guy. It's like that place he went with that nosy waiter. He's like, okay, who had the steak? I don't believe that's any of your business. But uh, 
Um, well, since uh, well, um, if if you if if you're not tired of hearing my voice after after this episode, uh, uh, you can find me elsewhere on the Two True Freaks Network. I am the host of Earth Destruction Directive, which is a Daikaiju podcast. We've talked about it a few times uh, tonight. Uh, we take a look at Japanese giant monsters, and we do movies and TV shows and comics and uh, video games and regular games and anything involving Japanese giant monsters. I'm also one of the co-hosts on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, along with my brother Jason and uh, the hair metal hero Chris Tyler and uh, Chris Honeywell. And we cover horror cinema primarily on that, although we have occasionally touched on uh, comics every now and again. And I'm also one of the co-hosts at Get Back to the Wrestling. Finally, there's a podcast on the internet about professional wrestling. And I co-host that with my brother Jason and with the Hair Metal Hero. And we talk about pro wrestling. So uh, please check out the podcast if any of those sound interesting to you. All right, I guess I'll go next then. So two places to find me. The first one, the main one, is Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, which is, well, all about Adam Warlock and Thanos. It's kind of there in the title. So if you like that, or if you like Jim Starlin, it's definitely a place to go, because you kind of find a lot of Jim Starlin when you deal with Adam Warlock and Thanos. Uh, the other show I'm on is uh, called Pop Culture Palace Presents. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a mixture show, kind of a bit of random stuff, TV, comics, movies, whatever different topics I feel like doing. And in fact, since we're doing this right after Halloween, both those shows were involved with two crossovers recently, if you want to look those up. Uh, we were all, I was involved in the best event ever crossover where a bunch of podcasts and blogs covered uh, Underworld Unleashed. So I have a couple episodes on that. And I also just did a four-part crossover cover um, because, well, Mephisto decided to attack us. And we were forced to cover the Mephistoverse miniseries from 1987, which cool. is, well, pretty horrific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I listened to that episode today. I'm sorry you had to go through that. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, those are the places to find me. All right. Uh, right now, the only place you can find me other than the guest spots is at thehammerstrikes.com, which is my weekly blog. Every Thursday, I come out with a new geeky topic. Uh, for some reason, I en inadvertently ended up with a Halloween theme for October. I did not plan that out. It just just happened. <laughs> uh, coming out of that, though, uh, in beginning of November, I am going to answer a question that someone brought up on Facebook is, what happened to all the worlds that V'ger digitized after it uh, merged with Ilea and Decker? So it's probably something that no one but me has thought about. <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of thing you get at the blog. Uh, right now, my podcasts are uh, on hold. I'm the the Quantum Cast, where we go over uh, everything Quasar, also known as the Kevin Bacon of the Marvel Universe, is uh, probably not going to be picking back up anytime soon due to my uh, co-host uh, having some uh, some issues where he can't podcast very easily. Uh, Similar to that, Anime Freaks is on hold because, well, that's why Dr. Bill isn't on here. <laughs> he has no time, therefore the show doesn't get done. And the Hammer Podcasts, keep an eye on that one. That We may be getting something special going in the new year for that. So, uh, can't say too much, but we got something in the works. So, hopefully we'll be picking back up on that fairly soon. Nice. Alright, thank you guys. Thanks for coming at you know kind of last note last minute i you know just asked this morning and you all uh cleared your schedules and came out and i appreciate it 
and hopefully everybody listening appreciates it as well because uh, it's I think you did it I think I think everybody did a good job tonight so hope everybody enjoyed listening and I know I enjoyed talking and come on back next week and we'll see who we have then Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Oh man, this is going to be so much fun. Paul, what a nice guy. I mean, we just recorded not that long ago, and then he says he's going to delay the recording tonight so I can make it. And I said I had family in, you know, in-laws, and it was, I wasn't going to be able to make the recording. But he said, no problem. Do it a little bit later. Man, just, what a guy. Jack and Eddie is going to be on, and Gino. I've recorded with them so many times, it'll be like old home week. It's like getting all the B-listers back together again. <laughs> oh, and Al Sedano. I don't think I've ever recorded with him. This is going to be great. Let me... Just head on up to the studio, and it looks like the looks like the building's kind of dark. But well, I guess maybe they're going for like a relaxed vibe, you know, little low lights, make everyone a little comfortable. You know, that's just Paul doing his producer thing, I guess. But the was the door lock that that hardly ever happens. Well, fortunately, I used to be an intern around here, so. Push the welcome mat aside. Ah, and there is the key. Smooth as silk. I am so glad. <laughs> One of those times when Dr. Bill wanted me to get his warm two-liter bottles of Diet Mountain Dew that I swung by the locksmith on the way and had this extra key made. And I don't know if Paul or Bill or Scott ever noticed all of those references to the Quarterbend podcast I would put in their rundowns. But, hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do, even when you're an intern. So, anyway, let me put the key back under the mat and just walk in. Hey, hey, got, hey, hey, where is everybody? Where is everybody? It looks like they, it looks like they recorded, recorded without me, without me. No!